What's your name? My name is Matt Neverett. What was your job last year in 2019? My job in 2019 was the play-by-play broadcaster for the Bradenton Marauders single-A affiliate of the Pirates. Who's your favorite Major League Baseball play-by-play announcer? The obvious answer is too obvious, and I'm not talking about Joe Davis. Probably at this point, Joe Castiglione. If, if it's not my dad, probably Joe, Joe Castiglione. Speaking of your dad, what's your name? My name is Tim Neverett. What's your job now, and how long have you been in this crazy industry? Well, my job now is broadcaster for the Los Angeles Dodgers on radio and TV. And in the crazy industry, I've been in over 30 years at all kinds of levels and uh, wouldn't want to do anything else. What was your father's occupation? My father's occupation was the car business. He was a car wholesaler. He didn't have anything to do with broadcasting. Nobody in my family did, except he helped me get an internship when I was 19 years old with the local radio station, which led me to do baseball at the AA level that summer and got me hooked. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, it's a Father's Day-inspired podcast. We talk fathers and sons, baseball and broadcasting, calls on the air and calls on the phone with Tim Neverett and the oldest of his three sons, Matt Neverett. That's next. This is Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Scenes, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. Thanks for joining me. This is really fun. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah good. appreciate it. All right, so let me do some quick introductions. Matt graduated from Appalachian State a few years ago. As he just mentioned, he was Bradenton, the Florida State League, for a couple years. Recently joined the Las Vegas Aviators just before the <laughs> pandemic to work in a variety of roles, including the video room. Tim, as he mentioned, Dodgers radio and TV now. Before that, Red Sox play-by-play. Before that, Pirates play-by-play. Before that, he was in Denver, Rockies pre and post, play-by-play of a whole bunch of sports, summer and winter Olympics of a whole bunch of sports. Before that, he was in Las Vegas, a Pacific Coast League alum, also worked for the minor league hockey team and basketball team, and also UNLV. I'm sure I'm missing out on a lot. Tim's career is very impressive. And what I was hoping to do, guys, was kind of follow your guys' careers through the eyes of each other. And so, Matt, I want to start with you. When did it dawn on you as a kid that the guy who's telling me to brush my teeth and clean my room is also the guy who's talking on radio or TV? Uh, I mean, it was always something that my uh, younger brothers and I were always kind of cognizant of growing up. We knew that it was a cool job and it was a fun job. It was good for us because all three of us played sports um, all the way up through high school. I played a little bit of baseball in college. So everyone was kind of always involved with it, uh, even before the, the possibility of working in sports. 
uh, in any kind of way, shape, or form was was even feasible as a young kid. So it was always kind of something that we used to um, always like and always want to be around. Uh, we used to go to the, the games all the time, and it was always just something that fascinated me, just the, the element and a lot of the things that go along with a, a live sporting event, it's, you know, especially on the air, the, you know, the stuff you can't take back. Once it's out there, it's gone. So uh, that, that, that pressure is really something that a lot of people kind of scares them away, but it's something that even from an early age was uh, something that made me very interested in uh, sports, live sports, and then the, the broadcasting element as I got older. When we moved to Pittsburgh um, after my freshman year of high school, our, our high school there had a, a cable television station that broadcast some games. So that's kind of how I got um, started in, in actually being on the air and broadcasting, doing uh, Pine Ridge High School women's basketball when I was, uh, I think, not, not even 15 years old, something like that. Tim, when, when did you feel it was appropriate and comfortable to start taking um, one of your sons or, or all of your sons to the ballpark where you could share with them this experience, but where they also weren't going to be a nuisance and you could still get your work done? I mean, as soon as possible. I mean, Matt doesn't remember this. The first game he went to, he couldn't even walk. He was in my arms. We went to a UNLV football game. I wasn't working, but, you know, I, I brought him there to show him off because you could do it at those football games. Back then, you could shoot a cannon off in many of the sections and not worry about hitting anybody. So I could drive right up, walk in, and, and uh, stayed with him for a half, Was took him into the booth, and um, he doesn't know this, but that's what that's hit probably the first game he ever went to. But, you know, as soon as they were uh, able to really understand, kind of like, yeah, we're at an event and Dad works here. Uh, I mean, I remember hearing from people from the uh, from the Las Vegas baseball club saying, boy, I remember your kids when they were, you know, this big running around in the, you know, in the old uh, club level area next to the booth and uh, things like that. And, uh, you know, as soon as we could get Matt into one of the one of the clinics, he was the only one old enough to get into one of the kids baseball clinics. Uh, a guy who now is the manager of the Chicago Cubs taught him how to bunt. David Ross, who was one that was of the only, that was about the only thing that I was actually any uh, good at in baseball. Yeah. <laughs> Which is funny. Dave, that's not something that that's not something that he was especially good at. No, he was terrible at bunting. He's also worse <laughs> at hitting. But just ask him; he'll he'll be the first to tell you. But yeah. uh, but anyway, so you know, being on the field, being around it, and I remember when we got to Pittsburgh, I brought all three of them to the ballpark, and they got to. To, to run around the field. I know Matt got to work with our infield instructor at the time, Perry Hill, who's now in the same role with the Seattle Mariners. And, uh, they got to run around PNC Park and see what that was all about. Uh, my youngest one, Drew, came to work with me on uh, Take Your Kid to Work Day. It was a getaway day for us. We were playing the Milwaukee Brewers, and we gave up 20 runs. And I think to this day, he still thinks it's his fault. He, didn't, he said he didn't want to go again. But they, they've had time, you know, observing in the booth, getting to meet a lot of people, getting to uh, understand what's around the ballpark. And, uh, you know, they've, they've been to a lot of events. So as soon as I felt that they were able to go and uh, I was still able to get everything I needed to get done and they could mind themselves, that, that was the time I thought that they could go. Matt, especially when, when dad's on the road. Um, whether it's in Las Vegas, if you can remember, and, and he's traveling in the PCL, or whether it's in Denver or Pittsburgh, obviously when he got older, how much of the family was like, hey, dad's on TV or dad's on radio, and, and we're going to watch him 
because he's not here, or is it just no? There's just a game on, and we just want to watch it because there's a game on. Uh, it's somewhere somewhere in the middle um, <laughs> because my brothers and I obviously always like to watch, and uh, when we, you know, with the Pirates specifically, that was a, a really big deal for us and the family when when my dad got that first big league job. So we really became you know full fledged Pirates fans, especially starting that summer of 2009. So you know we were really into it. Um, it, it, it's a unique setup in, in Pittsburgh, the way that they do it, where they bounce back and forth between play-by-play on the TV side and on the radio side. So, you know, it wasn't always, oh, let's, uh, you know, watch the TV and then crank up the transistor radio and listen to, listen to pops on that. But, you know, uh, we were, we watched pretty much every single game. Um, and nowadays with the MLB at Bad App, you can overlay the radio audio over the, the television speed. So that's been really beneficial for me uh, the last handful of years, just being on the road, being on the bus. Uh, I want to listen to the, the Pirates, Red Sox, Dodgers games. Um, so that, that's been a really big one. I've, I've listened to him on the radio more in the last couple of years, just being on the bus uh, and not, not really having a good enough cell service for a, for a, a television uh, on, on my phone. But I've listened to more of him in the last couple of years than I, than I have uh, on the radio uh, specifically since he got the, uh, the Red Sox and Dodgers gigs. Tim, was there ever like a code word that you would use for, for your wife or for your kids that means like, you know, I'm, I'll be home soon or, you know, listen to your mother or take out the trash or anything like that that you would try to weave in? No, I, I, did, give, uh, I did give my mother uh, a sign once on Mother's Day because they could get the games on the MLB package uh, back in New Hampshire and they would watch a lot. And uh, I did all the Sunday games uh you know we would alternate every other day but if there was one set day for tv home and road it was always sunday that i did the television and uh i did give her a sign one time where i told her i'd touch my tie i had a pink tie on or something i told her i'd touch the tie and that was for her but that, was, that was really the only time i i ever did that we used to do um in fact when we would go to albuquerque to do college uh, basketball there when i was doing uh, television games uh, a lot of the crew there like to uh, like to wager in the truck. So what they would do is they would give me a word during the game, like an odd word. Uh, one of them was actually isotopes one day uh, <laughs> that I had to get into the broadcast. And, you know, some guys were betting I could get it in. Some guys were betting I couldn't. Uh, but I, I usually always found a way to get it in. And, and, and with the one in Albuquerque, it was easy because, <laughs> you know, here we are at the pit right across the street from University Stadium and, and isotopes park. So that, that's how I snuck that one in. But that, that's uh, the only time I ever used code words was to help uh, the financial gain of some of our technicians in the truck. <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, I love it. Uh, Matt, was it always going to be following your, your father's path into this industry or what would, have, what would have been the other occupation that you might have done? I guess from a, a real age where you actually start to kind of make plans for a career, um, you know, not like I'm 10 years old and I want to be a fireman. Um, you know, when you actually kind of start to think, okay, this could be a possibility. This is what I'm looking at for college. Realistically, from the start, you know, I would say maybe 14, 15 is when you kind of start to actually plan that stuff out or you, you should, I guess, start to. And uh, the, the timing worked out perfectly from when we moved to Pittsburgh and getting the exposure on the, uh, on, on the broadcast tele- television station there at my high school really, really made a difference kind of at that pretty, pretty 
formative time in my life where I was like, okay, yeah, this is fun. I like doing it, obviously like sports and being around them and the atmosphere of a live event. So, you know, it was around that time where I was kind of like, you know, might as well make this happen. I can get a, get a head start on a lot of this stuff. I would say really the only other thing that I ever really considered and it was kind of just a fleeting thing was um, when we lived in Denver, uh, we lived um, pretty close to the Air Force Academy and we used to go to a lot of those games. And, uh, there was one thing uh, we always like to joke because I'm the only one in the family that um, doesn't wear contacts or glasses or anything. I've got good vision. So I always used to joke about wanting to be a fighter pilot. Um, this was, you know, 12 years old. And then I, I figured that it'd be a lot easier to sit in the booth and talk about sports than it would be to, to get shot at and have to learn. I, I wasn't good enough at, at, at math either. So um, sports announcer was always something that was a possibility for me because of my dad and some of the networking I've gotten through that. But you know, once I actually started doing it about, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old, that's when I realized, okay, this is a real possibility. Um, I like it. I think I have a, a natural knack and ability for it. And uh, just a lot, a lot of the hard work that, that goes into it kind of came later. But yeah, around that time is when I kind of started to realize, okay, this is something that I like and could be good at. And a true story, Josh, about the Air Force Academy. I used to go down there a lot to do games. And um, because when Matt was playing football, he kind of played himself out of his position uh, and became a specialist. And he was holding field goals and extra points. And when he expressed an interest in the Air Force Academy, I went down and saw Troy Calhoun. Uh, and I said, hey, coach, you need a specialist? You got a guy at, at uh, uh, Mountain Vista High School or whatever. And I said, he's going to be a specialist. Um, I said, but, you know, you, you're going to want to have him on your, on your club. And uh, so I actually talked to Troy Calhoun, a head football coach at Air Force, about Matt when Matt was a freshman. Uh, I think Troy thought I was kidding, though, and I kind of may have been half kidding, but I half wasn't, <laughs> just to see. Right. But uh, he wasn't taking any specialists at yeah. that time. Hey, you say I played myself out of that position. There isn't a market for many five foot three quarterbacks. That's, that's right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a little taller now, but yeah. That's just the nice way of saying it. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> so, Tim, when it comes to all, all three of your sons who are either doing this or going to college and, and, and pursuing this, you know how, how awesome this industry can be. I mean, what's better than call it a baseball game? You also know that it's highly competitive and cutthroat and that it can be disheartening and, and, executives can make decisions that make no sense whatsoever that impact your career. How much did you kind of counsel or advise uh, Matt and all your sons on, okay, the, the reward's really high, but it, it can be really disheartening at times too. It's tough. I think they know it. I mean, the fact of the, uh, one of the pieces of advice I tell them all is, and I tell everybody this too, who, who asked is get an inflatable bed. And if it doesn't fit in your car, you don't need it. Right. Because you're going to have to, <laughs> You're, you're going to have to move around. You're going to have to jump around, and it's not going to be easy. You're not going to make a lot of money at first. You're not going to, um, you know, it's, there's going to be things about it that aren't perfect. You're going to learn a lot about people. You're going to learn a lot about, you know, how to manage yourself and how to, uh, how to get ahead. But, uh, you know, if, I think at first, you know, when Matt was early on, uh, real early, he, he didn't listen to a word I said anyway. So, and I'd offer him advice and he'd say, yeah, yeah, whatever. And now, then he started to realize, well, you know, maybe that guy knows something. And so he does listen to me and he has listened to me a lot uh, in the last several years. But um, I, I think that they, they kind of got it because they lived through it a, a little bit, you know, with moving. Um, 
you know, honestly, the last thing I really wanted to do was move the kids around anywhere. But moving them to Pittsburgh, I think, was a good thing. Um, and uh, it was something that was necessary, I, I think. But, uh, you know, I didn't want to move them around, but we ended up doing it. And, and it's not easy, but they're, they're able to get along with people and make new friends. And that's that's been good. And I have friends in other cities and they're familiar with other cities. They're familiar with travel. They're familiar with, I mean, it's nothing for them, even at a, a much younger age, to get on a plane by themselves. You know, like two of them together, even one of them, it's, it's nothing for them to travel. So uh, they, they get it. Um, they're not afraid to drive anywhere of, of length. So, you know, you do learn a lot of things. You learn how to get along with people. And that, I think, is one of the, one of the biggest traits of this business is that you have to learn to get along with people. You know, I think they, they know from hearing all the details and, and knowing the intimate details of the, my situation where I left the Red Sox that it can be pretty nasty and cutthroat and how the business is not always uh, uh, what it's cracked up to be. You know, people would say, hey, you, you were doing the Red Sox. You wanna, you've got a World Series ring from the Red Sox. It's your childhood team. You grew up around there. What a dream job. And on, you know what? Yeah, when you get into it, it's really cool. And once the pat's on the back stop for getting the job, the, the way that that particular job is structured is not the way most of any other job in Major League Baseball is structured. You have people who have no idea what a baseball even looks like making the calls. And I'm not – it's not sour grapes by any stretch because I, I ended up with a, even a better job, much better job than I had. Um, and wouldn't have had that much better job had I not been in Boston. So uh, there are a lot of cutthroat people out there. There are a lot of people who can't wait to stab you in the back. Um, but what I often tell people is, uh, you know, if you're worried about criticism, worry about the people that hire you first and that, you know, a third of the people are always going to like you, a third of the people aren't, and a third of the people don't care. So as long as two-thirds of the people, you know, don't hate you, you're in good shape. When it comes to, to mentors and it's easier logical to have, you know, your dad be your mentor or your dad's um, partners in broadcasting be a mentor. But I always thought, especially with sports, that the people that I looked up to the most were the kids that were just two, three years older than me because I could relate to them more. And so Matt is the oldest of three brothers who would often be the one driving or leading the way through these airports. How much have you found yourself being a mentor to your younger brothers as they navigate this? Um, I, I think in, in a lot of ways, for sure, um, just because it, it is sports in general, but baseball specifically, and I guess even more specifically, minor league baseball is a, a really a realm that you have to kind of circumnavigate. It's not a straight line. There's no no real set game plan. So it's something that you always kind of are bobbing and weaving and learning new things and networking. And I, I think a lot of those skills are definitely something that I've tried to, to pass down to my younger brothers is just the kind of how to navigate the, the sports sports realm because we all, we all work in it or are going to work in it now. And uh, I, I really like, you know, helping not only my brothers, but uh, a lot of uh, the, the app state um, broadcasting students. I still have students that will reach out to me. A lot of guys that I've worked with in baseball in the past, that are that are looking to progress um, you, you know so I, I i love helping people out i listen to demo tapes i, I just turned 26 usually when you hear you know uh, i want to send you my demo tape you're talking to like a 50 year old uh you know triple a guy or big league guy but uh that's something that i i really enjoy because you know not only does it help them it helps me i like 
I like comparing myself in that in that aspect is you know seeing kind of where I where I stack up. But not only that, but how can I help other people? Because you know it really is you know if you're if you're not bringing people up to the level where where you are or where you want to be, you're you're sinking down to the level where other people are. So I think that that's something that I always like to keep in mind is you know why why not if it's my brothers if it's other people uh, even that I'm in competition with why not just bring everybody up 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 to that same level? It's something that I, I definitely really enjoy. You know, Tim, along those lines, and I know that Matt has done things besides play-by-play and continues to do those things, but when he first started calling games, how much were you able to separate, I'm just a dad who's proud of his son and just wants to listen to him, with I'm a dad who also knows and I can write down little notes and I can help him out and I can remind him of this little thing or that little thing in order to help him get better and better? Well, I'm sure he can tell you the times that, He's sitting there in the booth in uh, an empty stadium in the Florida State League, and he gets a text from me, uh, not realizing that I'm I'm listening to his game. Uh, you know, little things here and there. As part as far as separating it, I think when he first began to do it, uh, he did it in a, in a college wood bat league um, uh, here in New Hampshire, and I think that was a great you know launch pad for him. Uh, it happened to be in the same stadium I started in when I was 19 years old. And, uh, my brother is the man, it was the manager of that team. And so it was kind of a all in the family situation. But, uh, you know, when I first started listening to him, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to start correcting him. I just want him to get comfortable on the air and I want him to get comfortable with the whole thing, the whole, you know, preparation, carrying out the game. And then going back and saying, okay, uh, I, have to, so I have to listen to what I just did and have other people hear them. And other people say, hey, I heard your kid on the radio or something like that. Uh, yeah, obviously that makes you proud. But uh, then as time goes on, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. Because, you know, he, he probably noticed that, you know, during his uh, second year, maybe in advanced A, as opposed to when he was first starting in a college wood bat league, I said less to him when he was starting than as he was advancing uh, because he could understand things a lot better. Like, you know, little things like how to get you know, little crutches you say, or the difference between when to use the and the, which was a big one with him at the beginning. And then he realized it and he stopped doing it. You know, just little tiny things that, that people who make decisions listen for. And then, you know, as he got later on in his second year, it was more like I'd be sitting in the booth at Dodger stadium or on the road somewhere and I'd have it on my phone, and he didn't know that other major league broadcasters would come in the booth and would listen to him also. And I'd say, yes, yeah, my kid, listen. You know, I was like, yeah, great. I, I want you to hear him. What do you think? So, you know, we had, uh, you know, and Joe Castiglione, when I was with Boston, he would, he would listen as we are sitting there doing game prep in the afternoon. I'd have Matt on. And, you know, so his broadcast was being aired through my phone at Fenway Park where, you know, our producer and my partner could hear and they would say, yeah, you know, he's getting better. He's getting better. So those are the types of things that make you proud as a dad, but you separate it at a point where you say, okay, now he's got to be professional enough to move along. And, uh, you know, I skipped the part when he was in double A because from there he went down to single A to do more games. Uh, You know, now he's going to get an opportunity uh, when the minor league season starts again uh, to, to do fewer games, but he's ready to do it at the AAA level. And then, you know, he'll, he'll fill in, uh, at least that's the plan. He'll fill in for us every now and again. 
uh, as well as doing other things with video and, and other broadcasting things around the ballpark. But um, just the fact that he has been able to work at A ball, double A, and now getting the chance at triple A is good because now I think he can be there for a while and, and really, really get a chance to, to see how things are done at that level. Uh, and as you know, it's a much different level than, than anything as you move up. And I'm just looking forward to seeing how he continues to develop. But, you know, you do kind of have to separate at some point between proud dad, even though that never changes, to, okay, he's got to get this right or maybe try this instead of what he just said. Matt, you were nodding your head a lot during that. Uh, what were some of the things that are going through your mind as you just heard all that? Well, what, what I was going to say is the, 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 the point about him kind of helping and the, the balance of, you know, wanting to help but not just hammering you on grammatical layers the whole time. It's something that I definitely had uh, come to appreciate. And a lot of people, you know, would have that happen to them and be like, oh, man, my dad's hammering me. Tell, tell the old man to leave me alone. But um, I, I think one skill that it's really helped me develop has been that, that kind of self-editing on the fly, the the you know, flew out versus fly it out, little, little things like that where once it's kind of pointed out to me because, you know, I'm kind of used to, you know, as soon as he says something, all right, let's make, flip, flip the switch and try and uh, find a way to, to correct that error, whatever it may be. So that's something that definitely has, um, you know, improved my announcing has been the learning how to self-edit on the fly. Uh, because you know, I don't want I don't want Dad texting me and saying, "Hey, you say you said you said flew out for the third time tonight." I don't want to hear that anymore. So I I, I appreciate that for sure, and I like how he uh, balanced it out as my broadcasting came along. <laughs> so at, at least we'll say. Both of you have used the the versus the, and I think no matter what industry you're in, regardless of whether it's broadcasting, it's an important skill. And Tim, you've done, uh, you've been great in doing a lot of Zoom calls with broadcasters and really emphasizing this. So for this podcast audience, make sure that we all know the difference between the and the. Yeah. The eighth inning, the ninth inning. <laughs> Anytime, and this is something I think I learned in the first grade. I'm not sure what grade you learned it in, Matt, but I know you, you know it now. Uh, what grade but, am I in now? Yeah. Yeah. What grade are you in now? Anyway. It's anytime there's a consonant after the word T-H-E, it's the. Anytime it's a, I mean, a consonant, it's it's the. Anytime it's a vowel, it's the. So if you go out there and you say, well, welcome back to the bottom of the eight, it, it just doesn't sound right. You know, welcome back to the bottom of the eight. Uh, something like that. So it's a, it's a little pet peevey thing that is picked up. And I cannot tell you the number of demos that I listen to where I hear young broadcasters do it. And, and that's the reason I bring it up, and I bring it up in the Zoom calls with the, with the minor league uh, broadcasters because some of them are probably doing it. I will say that some of the people I had on the calls, I've already gone over their demos before those calls, and I've picked it out. Uh, there have been multiple people. And uh, the flied and flu thing, a lot of the younger broadcasters uh, mess that up. And, it's, and I tell people, look, I'm not an English major. I'll just tell you this, go to Google and type in one word, FLIED, F-L-I-E-D. It will tell you the first thing. And the example is baseball. As in baseball, he flied to left field. I can say I flew to Los Angeles or I flew to Boston or I flew wherever. Uh, I was on a plane and I flew yesterday. Fine. I didn't fly yesterday, but 
but it, for, for whatever reason, it's like the, I don't know, the, the past participle of whatever rule it is. But just remember, just use it. It's one of the great things about the English language. There's so many exceptions, and that's a big one. And that's one that, you know, I got the, uh, the finger wave for uh, early in my career, you know, the, the, the come here motion from my boss who looked at me, who was a, an older gentleman who is one of my mentors and, and a guy who, who I, I really, really appreciated him taking an interest in my career, helping me. But he, he said, come here. And he told me the whole fly versus flu, uh, sorry, fly versus flu situation. And uh, he says, you catch the flu, but when a, fly, when a guy flies out, he's flied out. So I tried to remember it that way. And uh, never forgot it since. And I still, I've, I've caught guys at the major league level doing it. And, I, and I'm driving and listening on XM and I'm going, no, because I know all these guys. I'm yelling their name. No, don't say that. Um, you know, so it's just one of those things. But little pet peeves. But if you can get through those little minor things, they, if you don't get through them, they're not minor. They become major. And I think they can impede somebody from moving along because of who the decision makers are who have to listen to these demos at the upper levels of baseball. I was playing MLB The, the Show on PlayStation the other day, right? They had Matt <laughs> Vaskersian saying, flew out. Oh, poor Matt. He knows better. I know. I was like, what? Matt, no, I guarantee you, Matt knows better. You know what? Probably I'll tell you, say it this way. From doing video games, okay, I'm going to tell you that that's not his fault. The way that yeah. I, I've done voiceovers for like 2K stuff in the past. So I know what they do. They, you have to say all these lines and there's an editor that chops them up and that the algorithm puts certain words in certain areas based on situations that happen in the game. So you, you probably will, would say flu in one of your scripts somewhere and maybe it pulled it up there and did it. I'm going to give yeah. him the benefit of the doubt. Otherwise, the next time I see him, I'm going to bring it up to him. <laughs> Tim, I was going to ask the uh, the gentleman you're referring to is that Bob in Las Vegas? Yeah, Bob Bloom, uh, Robert J. Bloom, uh, one of the greatest guys ever. Uh, he was the director of broadcasting for the Las Vegas AAA Club, and we were the stars when I first began, and then turned into the Fifty Ones, and then they've been uh, uh, well, the Aviators since the Fifty Ones. Uh, Bob passed away a few years ago. Uh, you know, one of the one of the great all-time Vegas classic guys, just, you know, a wonderful guy. He had much experience in the major leagues and in the NFL and a, a lot of things. And, and he took an interest in me and, and he would help me. And, uh, he kind of did things with me like I do with Matt. Like he'd just tell you every once in a while. He wouldn't pound on me. And he would say, you know, we'd have conversations about other things. And then uh, if he'd hear something, he wouldn't tell me right away. He might tell me the next day or two days from that just to kind of keep a balance, as you say. Um, but he helped uh, correct a lot of things that I had stupidly done and uh, really appreciated everything he did. He was one of the very first guys I called when I got uh, my first big league opportunity with the Rockies doing uh, some games on a fill-in basis. And then when I got the full-time gig with the Pirates, I called him. You know, uh, I was still with the Pirates when he passed away. And, you know, he was he was absolutely one of the best. He, and and uh, uh, Ken Korak, who does the A's, he and I feel the same way about Bob. We, in fact, Ken called me a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it, it, we, we talk, you know, fairly often. And whenever we do, we bring up Bloomer. We talk about Bob. And, 
uh, guy had a big, big uh, influence on both Ken's and my careers. Yeah, he's, um, his face was at Cashman Field. Uh, I can't remember if they moved it over. Hopefully they did to the new ballpark. Yes, they did. Only, they did. Okay, good. I only got to meet him once. It was actually, I was at Kid Crack's house for Thanksgiving, actually, and got introduced to him. And I wish that I would have had a chance to, to learn more about him and be more around him. You know, Thanksgiving, you don't want to go bothering somebody too much. But, hey, give, give me some broadcasting tips. It's about eating and having fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but since you are a PCL alum, Tim, I, I want to ask some PCL stories. Um, when I think of Cashman Field, I think how – Hot it is. It seems like the isotopes are always there just before the All-Star break or just after the All-Star break, and it would be 110 degrees. Now it's 55 degrees in, because the air conditioning won't turn off at Las Vegas Ballpark in Summerlin. But what game do you recall that was the hottest that you broadcast? Oh, gosh. That's it's a hard because Take your pick. You show up from – yeah, you can pick them. You, take, you go up to BP at uh, – four o'clock in the afternoon and it's like being a, in a convection oven if there was any wind any kind of a breeze and that's why that's the first ballpark by the way i'd ever seen teams come in and start using the uh, the mesh shorts and then they had t-shirts and shorts on for bp typically you'd be in full uniform for bp or you'd have a, a batting practice top on not at cape cashman um that that didn't happen there uh I think the Phoenix Firebirds were the first team I saw do that. Then, of course, the 51s and other teams that would come in, the Tucson Toros, uh, where Matt Baskurgeon was at the time. And uh, it, it was hot, and it was hot a lot. And we didn't have the the sprayers, you know, the little misters yep. yeah. above us. I think they put those in later. So, you did, I mean – I can't remember one specific game where it was super hot. Um, I do remember a game we had to go to Phoenix uh, to play the Firebirds. This was before the Diamondbacks were in. And they usually played at Scottsdale Stadium. But it was July 4th, and they have a fireworks show. So Scottsdale Stadium's right near a hospital, so they couldn't do the fireworks show there. So for the 4th of July game, we'd move it to Phoenix Municipal which is now the home of Arizona State. The Oakland A's used to train there. And you could do whatever you wanted at Phoenix Muni. But Phoenix Muni was not set up as a regular ballpark on a day-to-day basis. And I remember uh, flying over there in the morning, getting there, and it being so hot that, uh, that I got sick. And I tried to go – before the game, I tried to go into the clubhouse. They weren't using the clubhouses. They were going back to Scottsdale Stadium. They are just basically a show-and-go at uh, – at Muni. So I go downstairs and I try to get in the cold shower before the game because I'm just, I'm too hot. Not realizing that no one was using Phoenix Muni for the summer other than for that game. And they turned off all the water. Oh no. So I couldn't cool off and I had to do this game and it was televised. This was one of our televised games. Man. And, and, and I, I was, so uncomfortable and I went back to the hotel after the game and continued to throw up and was I threw I threw up in a barrel at the game and I mean it was just awful the heat was killing me and, and that was the hottest game I can remember was in Phoenix where the temperatures don't differ that much from Vegas all right Tim so we just heard some stories about how hot it's been in the PCL you were also in the league when there was teams in Edmonton and Calgary and Vancouver so do you have a story about some of the coldest baseball games that you broadcasted in the PCL I think Edmonton 
uh, was it Telus Field, I want to say, in Edmonton. It was AstroTurf. And I remember going up there, oh gosh, must have been, I don't know, May or something. And May in Edmonton is far different than May in Las Vegas. It's, it's, you may as well be on the other side of the equator. And, and it, it was cold. You know, where else gets cold? Salt Lake City. Because you're still going to see, it's, it's the most beautiful backdrop in the PCL. Uh, but you're still going to see snow on the mountains, you know, for quite a while there. But yeah, Edmonton was, Edmonton was cold. Vancouver was rainy. I remember going up there and uh, one series up there, I sat in a hotel for three days before we could squeeze in a double header on the fourth day. And it it was muggy. It was humid. And it just poured for three straight days. And that's Vancouver. But uh, Edmonton, probably the coldest that I can remember. And, uh, yeah, times have changed a lot in the PCL in terms of where teams are. But give me the warmth over the cold any day. Matt, you got to have some some humid stories from the Florida State League. Oh, yeah. You lose about five pounds a day if you're not careful there. Uh, That's why you have to eat terribly. Um, Yeah, it's – I'll take 110 with no humidity in Vegas over 90 and 90 in Florida any day of the week. Um, I mean, it's hot, humid, and uh, a lot of a lot of rain. That's why you know you said that, that Vancouver story reminded me of a series in Daytona where we went out there for three days and didn't play in it. Uh, the one day we never even left the hotel. Yeah, uh, so there is a, a lot of rain. Shout out, credit all of the credit in the world to the ground screws and the head groundskeepers in the Florida State League, um, except except in Daytona because they have turf, but they're the only ones. But, um, I mean, it, it, it rains so much, but it'll rain for 20 minutes at a time. So you'll get that, uh, what you probably didn't experience much, if at all, in the PCL, which was at about 2 p.m., you got your walkie-talkie, and it's, all right, everybody, get your uh, tarp clothes on. We're getting ready to head out there. All right, everybody, do the tarp. Hustle up. we got to get it on. And then about 30 minutes later, all right, we're taking it off because it's going to be sunny for the rest of the day now after a torrential downpour. So there's a lot of those kinds of stories. Um, I used to say it's not the Florida State League, it's the Florida Sweat League because that's pretty much all you do as a player, as an announcer, as a guy throwing T-shirts off the top of the dugouts. All you do is sweat. And uh, a couple older ballparks in that league, it's mostly spring training sites, yeah, all but two, all but one now. And that's Daytona, always the outlier. But in Bradenton at Lecom Park, it is the third oldest stadium in use in baseball right now behind Fenway and Wrigley Field. That also means it doesn't have air conditioning in the press box. So I'm up there in the Florida summers in the polo and slacks or khakis. Uh, I, I think I had at about any time probably three stands pointed right at my face, but not into the microphone. I had to strategically kind of place them around. I had one on the bottom kind of pointing up. Um, it, it was a, a contraption to be sure, but uh, it, it was necessary. I mean, it is, it is so humid. I mean, it's, it's hot, obviously, uh, but it's just, it's just so humid. I was talking to a buddy out there actually yesterday who was our video board director when I was there, and uh, I was in the car, and it said uh, 92 in my car. He said, oh, it's 93 here, and I said, it's probably with a ton of humidity, right? And he goes, oh, yeah, it was raining this morning. So, uh, like, like I said, I'll take 110 in Vegas over 95 in Florida any day of the week. Tim, your first year with the Stars uh, was 96. Is that right? Sounds about right. 95, I think. Okay, 95. 95, 96, somewhere in there. Okay, so I I wanted to ask you a a somber topic because this is something you don't learn in broadcasting school and and just how you figure it out. And Because I I was researching this um, the other day about Mike Sharperson. 
Yeah. And Mike Sharperson, someone who won a World Series with the Dodgers, had been in the major leagues. And now he's signed by the Padres, and he gets told that he's getting called up to the major leagues. And he goes home to pack to go to the airport, and he tragically gets into a car accident and dies um, before he can get back to the major leagues. How do you report that? How do you handle that? How do you, how do you, how do you, how do you, you know? Well, I think at the, at the time, I mean, obviously times were different. There was no social media, so there was no instant report of anything, right? The, the newspapers in Las Vegas had it. I think the television news had it uh, before we ever did anything with it. Uh, it was, it was hard and it, it was different. I remember my, you know, my partner at the time, John Sandler was, was particularly struck by it. He had become pretty close to, to Mike and, uh, I mean, I remember, wasn't that many years earlier that he, I was at the all-star game in, I want to say in San Diego, and he was the Dodgers representative. Uh, he, he was, uh, I want to say he was a Dodger at that time as an all-star. And so, you know, Mike was a guy who's a veteran player. He'd been around and he was the guy that they really looked up to. And it's, it's really hard because there was a, obvious absence it was an obvious hole in the in the clubhouse um but as far as you know going on the air and talking about it that was obviously leads off the next broadcast and you discuss it a little bit and talk to the manager about it and uh, I can't remember if we played the next day or not at, at this time but I think there was a it might have been a short break in there I don't know but anyway when we got back to it um, it was just one of those things where something's missing. And I remember at the end of the season, signing off for the last game, you know, you talk, you go through memories of the season and there was a lot of talk about him and it was kind of emotional signing off that season. It was, it was pretty tough. I do remember um, another story that we actually uh, reported uh, as was happening because in those days you had the, the ticker in the back of your booth and the news ticker. And it was when uh, Princess Diana was killed. The first place anybody in Las Vegas heard about it was, was on our broadcast because it happened. And the news came out of Great Britain at that time and started getting around the U.S. But there were no really other places at that time that were live where they could get on the air and, and give that news. And, and I remember having to deliver that news and just getting it, taking my mind off the baseball game, reading the copy in front of me, and just going, how am I going to do this? <laughs> uh, and then you get into it. But as far as, uh, you know, losing a team member, that, that's something you hope never happens to anybody. Uh, it, unfortunately, it has happened uh, around the world of sports, but it, it's tough. You know, his teammates took it to, obviously took it hard, and, and it, was a, it was a shame that it happened. It really was. Tim, when you were in Las Vegas, you also did hockey, basketball. Um, you, you, you were a grinder, and I think there's a lot of us who are always really happy for you and can look to you and knowing how hard you had to grind to get to where you are now. When you were in Las Vegas, did you feel like you had a better chance at the NHL or Major League Baseball? Uh, to be honest with you, I thought I had a chance in hockey. Um, there were a, a couple of teams that actually talked to me. Uh, and I had at that time thought that I would, I would have a better chance. And I, and 
the president of the team was also the president of the ball club. It was the same, same ownership of the baseball and hockey team, uh, which was pretty beneficial to me to be able to do both. Uh, but uh, I still continued to work at baseball, but I thought at one time or another that I would probably make that jump in hockey. I still do hockey, still do some college hockey. I don't know what I'll do this year. I may or may not do some, I don't know, but I've been doing college hockey and I've done, you know, Olympic hockey and other things too, but doing the IHL was a lot of fun. And I thought doing the NHL would be the ultimate goal. However, once I really started to kind of refocus on what I was doing in terms of baseball, uh, it wasn't until I got to Colorado and started working with Fox sports network there that they started to say, you know, look, you, you might want to focus on baseball. We, you know, they had me doing college hockey there, but when I did some Rocky stuff for them, then they started to help me to, to try to advance. Um, I, in the, the nice thing was I didn't ask them to help me. They executive producer came to me one day and he goes, what do you know about Milwaukee? I said, uh, uh, you want me you want the Wikipedia version? What do you, <laughs> you know? So he, he said, look, the, the brewers and we've been talking to the brewers. They're very interested in talking to you. Um, so they set me up with an interview with Milwaukee. Then I got flown out there. Uh, I didn't fly it out. I flew out there. Um, and it was me and uh, one other guy who didn't get the job and uh, Brian Anderson. The three were the three finalists. Brian ended up getting the job. He met with the owner the next day. He interviewed the next day. I interviewed on whatever day it was, and I didn't get to meet the owner. He happened to be at a funeral. So the owner told him to pick Brian. <laughs> and Brian takes off, and now he is like the king. And he and I have talked about it and we, you know, VA is a great dude and I couldn't be happier for him, but um, it, it didn't work out in Milwaukee. So a few years later, uh, maybe a year and a half later, I got the same guy calling me. He goes, Hey, what do you know about Pittsburgh? I said, what do you want? The Wikipedia version? <laughs> he goes, no, no, no. The, the pirates, we've been talking to them on your behalf and, and they, they want to talk to you. So I interviewed with the pirates and got that job. And uh, I couldn't have done it without the guys in Denver, but they really were, trying to get me to focus on baseball. They thought that, that that's where my future would be. Matt, how old were you when the family moved from Las Vegas to Denver? You, were you old enough to kind of realize what this means for dad's career in life? Yeah, so I was in the middle of fourth grade. So that makes me, what, like nine, nine or ten years old, somewhere in that. It was in 2000 and, 2004 when we moved. So, yeah, I would have been about ten years old. So, I, I you know, that's about the time when I started. I guess if I look back, that's about the – end of where my vivid vivid memories are from from las vegas I, I really remember moving and i remember there was a different job i don't remember specifically what it was dad but before you got the z560 gig in denver there was another one i, I it might have been in denver that or it was the z 561 it was you didn't get it and then you did get it so that was we yeah. were kind of we, we were we were ready to move and then he didn't get the job and then they called him back and said actually we changed our mind you did get it so we kind of went from, all right, let's do this, to, oh, no, those guys are the worst. You, all right, never mind, we take it back. Yeah. So I, I, I do remember that. I do remember um, the day that we got to Denver, my, my brothers and I with our mom and our uh, dog, just, just just the one dog at the time. We got another one pretty soon after that. But I remember we got to uh, the town called Highlands Ranch where we ended up living uh, just south of Denver. And we pulled into the near the neighborhood where our house was. There was a park where we had to wait for something. And it just started snowing, just dumping snow. And this is a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 5-year-old who 
had only ever lived in Las Vegas and had seen about an inch of snow total in their lives falling from the sky. So I, I, I that was a, a really, really cool vivid memory that I have of right when we first moved to Denver, getting uh, dumped on eight inches of snow in March on the, the first day that we moved into town. Yep, Dad Clark Park was the name of the park. Yep, right there by Heritage Elementary, yeah. That's, yeah, I was going to ask you guys, in fact, about just going from Las Vegas to Denver. Yeah, it gets hot in Denver in the summer and you get some flash floods, but it's, you know, the winters are a whole lot different there. Yeah, they were, and I had grown up in New England, so I was prepared. Uh, these guys had to learn, you know, what a shovel is and occasionally how to use one. Stress the word occasionally. Uh, but, um, yeah, but they actually enjoyed it. They learned to like it. They, you know, started to snowboard and they, you know, they just learned that the Colorado culture was pretty cool. And and I think they liked it, uh, in terms of, you know, you wake up one day, you got a foot of snow on the ground. Oh, that's good. We go out and play it. It's fun. It's cold, but it's fun. And so they, they adjusted and they adapted pretty quickly to it. Tell me about this, Tim, just the the time in Denver doing a variety of different sports. And I'm pretty sure that's when you started to do some Olympic things. And so you're hosting your play by play. It's a variety of sports and, and what all of those experiences did for you that helped get you to the next steps in your career. Um, Yeah, actually the first Olympics I did, we were still in Vegas. It was uh, Salt Lake uh, Olympics. And uh, I got a call last minute as a fill in. And had to work it out, right? Because I had to leave for a month. Because you have to go for a month, five weeks. And so I went to uh, the 2002 games in uh, in Salt Lake City, and that was my first experience. And fortunately, I was familiar with Salt Lake, so I knew where I was going. I knew, you know, all that. The other places, no, not so much. A little different. <laughs> You're uh, not as familiar with uh, Beijing as you are Salt Lake. <laughs> no, I was in a cab in Beijing once for two hours. I didn't think I went anywhere. Everything looked the same, um, but. Uh, you know, Athens, Greece, same thing. And, uh, you know, Turin, Italy, same thing. When I went to Colorado, I continued to do the Olympics, which was great. And, and I was able to do some uh, live radio from over there. I did some other television features for both uh, FSN and for Comcast while I was there. And I, I worked for a, a group called One Sport that was based out of Auckland, New Zealand and uh, Johannesburg, South Africa. And they do English language to everywhere else that NBC and CBC in Canada don't cover. So, I mean, our, uh, the BBC has certain things, but they didn't take every sport. So we would fill in. So like our stuff, like we might have a, a women's ice hockey preliminary round game that one of the BBC channels might take. Uh, but there's a hundred some odd countries that are using them not only for highlights, but for, for, for full commercial free channels that they have. And, and, all these broadcasters around the world are different. So I, I really learned a ton about international television as opposed to how we do it here. Because the Olympics are so very different than they're presented on NBC. <laughs> they really are. Uh, we as Americans have a whole different feel for it than the rest of the world does. Um, so because we, I, that was the first time I had seen all these Olympic events in their entirety, start to finish. Uh, so, but those experiences, the experiences I had in Denver, you know, like, uh, FSN said, look, we want to give you a, a chance. Uh, we're going to send you out to do a division one double a game at when they used to call it division one double a, which they don't anymore. Um, at Northern Colorado, we want to see how you do. So it was like a, it was a, an audition basically. 
I never asked them how much they were paying me. And I, I never asked until I was even through with the event. I just wanted to get the chance. So once I did it, they liked it. And they said, Hey, by the way, we have to pay you. And here's what we're going to pay you. And I said, wow, that's thank you. Uh, <laughs> and, they, and they said, we have another game. Would you, are you available for that one? I said, absolutely. And then they said, we have this and that. And then I get a phone call one day saying, have you ever done lacrosse? I said, no. The guy said, don't worry. It's just hockey on grass. You can do it. I got a six game package for you at the university of Denver. I'm like, all right, I'll do it. I'll figure it out. I, I did soccer. I did track and field. They hooked me up with uh, you know, big Fox uh, to do the national uh, national feed on uh, the RSN feed nationally on the cable network for, for different events. And I did some, they used to do a big 12 football pay-per-view. And so I did some of that stuff. Uh, with the University of Colorado. Then they'd send me to Colorado State. And, you know, they did me do all kinds of stuff. Arena football I did for a while. John Elway on the team. And uh, I I worked with some some interesting guys, including Joel Klatt, uh, who uh, did high school football with Joel Klatt and Carissa Thompson, who are both stars on Fox now, right? Now, they were doing high school football with me as their first ever events. And I remember – you know, Joel in the booth, his first game, like shaking, like, what do I do? Uh, I'm kind of nervous. This is live, isn't it? And I'm like, Joel, you used to play quarterback in front of 40, 50,000 people. And you're nervous about this. I go, I told him, I said, no one's watching anyway. Don't worry. Which of course they were watching because we had a big audience for, for high school football there. They were produced like college games. And um, so we got through those things and he got through the jitters and then I ended up doing college games with Joel and, and arena football games with him and his career just took off. And, um, uh, you know, Carissa Thompson was the sideline person for us. And, uh, she, she was really learning and, uh, she got to learn and she got with the right people that, and, and really taught her well. And, and she uh, learned the craft and now she's a star at Fox. So doing all these different things, you never know who you're going to meet. You never know who you're going to work with. You never know how it's going to take off, but it was those people in Denver that helped, me develop in baseball and move on to Pittsburgh eventually. What was your favorite sport to call out of, out of the, take away the big four. Uh, what, what was your favorite sort of the Olympic sports? I realized that hockey and basketball are Olympic sports, but what was your favorite out of the non big four at, at the Olympic games or for anything? Yeah. Else? For anything else, Olympics, Denver, all, all the above. I mean, I, obviously I like doing the hockey. Uh, one thing that was really fun was arena football. I had fun with that because they had great crowds. They were a good team. We did a big-time telecast. We traveled with them. Uh, and the sport is just so fast. And at that time, they had higher-level players at that time. Uh, so it was kind of fun. You know, I, I did some other things. Actually, when I learned how to do track and field, I actually kind of liked that, too. That was pretty good. And, um, you know, at the Olympics, I had – I did 120-meter uh, long hill ski jumping qualifying once which I thought was kind of fun I did some other odd events at the Olympics I did soccer on 10 minutes notice once that's a, that's a whole other story <laughs> wasn't, it, wasn't that um, Iran versus Iraq it would no it was uh, Iraq versus Portugal oh, oh lovely. and uh, what's his name from uh, uh, Ronaldo yeah Ronaldo was in that game he was uh, he played in that game? oh yeah and, and the, and the reason I had anything at all for that game was on my flight over to Athens, we stopped in Munich to change planes. And 
all of a sudden on my plane comes this big television camera and all these guys wearing these crimson blazers. And the only guy I recognized, and they had the Portuguese logo on it, and the only guy I recognized was Ronaldo. And so I realized the Portuguese national soccer team was on my flight. And they waited for their luggage, same as me, around the carousel when we get to Athens. So I'm standing around the carousel with these guys. And it turned out I was an emergency fill-in in Athens for the preliminary round the game between Iraq and Portugal that Ronaldo played in. So I had to tell that story during the game because I didn't have a, an analyst. I was doing it solo. Oh, yeah. And I asked the executive producer. He, he ran into this research area because I was researching baseball looking for stuff on the Cuban team because there was hardly anything available at that time. I was doing Olympic baseball, mostly. So uh, the executive producer runs in. He sees I'm the only person in there, and he says, you ever done football? And without even thinking, I said, oh, yeah, lots of it. And I went, oh, he means soccer. (laughs) (laughs) He goes, good, because you're the only one here. You're under contract. You speak English. And in 10 minutes, you're doing Iraq and Portugal. I said, does it bother you that every one of your viewers knows more about the game than me? He goes, like I said, you're here, you speak English, and you're under contract. He goes, we'll, we'll help you as best we can. Um, it was the longest 90 minutes of my professional career. Wow. It was hard. I didn't know who any of these guys were, how to pronounce names. <laughs> Matt, you sure right. you want to stay in this industry? Hey, I like a challenge. That sounds, uh, sounds like a good time, especially on 10 minutes notice. I, I mean, yeah. I've had... I've had that happen before. Obviously, the stakes were a lot lower. This was when I was at uh, – actually, I had it happen at, at both colleges I went to. The first two years, I went to this uh, tiny little school in the woods of West Virginia called Bethany College. And um, I, I walked in there day one and was one of the, like, top announcers right away. So there was older guys, but, you know, at a small school like that, you know, they, they're, they're busy. They can't, you know, cover a volleyball game. All of a sudden, I get the call, hey, you live across the street from the gym. Do you want to call volleyball? Yeah, I'm on the way. I, I used to get work study for it. So I'm like, yeah, I'll come collect my minimum wage for four hours. But uh, and then uh, when I transferred to Appalachian State after my sophomore year, got involved with the radio program there right away. And, um, you know, upper level football, I mean, everyone enjoyed calling the football games, but the basketball program, especially when, when I was there, not quite at that same echelon. So, you know, every now and then, you know, a college junior doesn't, feel like waking up at 8 a.m. on a Saturday to call a women's basketball game after they went out the night before. So I'm the one that gets to call, hey, so-and-so bailed. You you want the game? Yeah, sure, I'm in. Top of the games that I was doing anyway. So I, I've had, like I said, the stakes not quite as high as at the Olympics, but uh, similar situations of, hey, you're here, you speak English, we're going to put you on the air. <laughs> Pretty much it. Yeah. Don't say no. Don't say no when they ask. Don't ever say no. They'll never ask again. <laughs> I'll never ask again. All right, as we start to wrap things up, as we're recording this, it's two days before Father's Day. And so, Matt, you know, especially as, as we're close to, to Father's Day and as we've been telling these stories for however long we've been going, um, what does Father's Day mean to you and being able to share uh, this same industry with your father? Well, I mean, just being able to, you know, not only have something in common right off the bat, which um, isn't always the case between, you know, the, the, the father-son relationships. We, we, we've always had that in common, but just being able to kind of share the craft is something that we both are passionate about and something that we both, you know, really care about and want to uh, not only improve ourselves, but improve others, the ones that we care about, the ones that reach out. So that's definitely uh, a good, good common quality that, that my dad and I share and it's something that uh, I definitely 
don't take for granted. I'm really appreciative that, uh, you know, not only the things that he's done for me in life and in sports and in baseball specifically, but that he's done for others with the, the Zoom calls he's done recently and just a lot of the, the help that he provides others is definitely, you know, something that I get to see on an everyday level, but it's something that um, I see him doing doing elsewhere as well. And Tim, for you, you know, you told us at the beginning how your father knew someone with the radio station that, that helped get you in there uh, at, at a young age and, and just what Father's Day meant to you first when you were a kid and now as a father yourself. It was always a, an important thing. Um, still is uh, because of the things that, that, you know, I learned from him where uh, no matter what business it is, don't turn down opportunities. Uh, I mean, we were in totally different businesses, had totally different interests as far as business was concerned. But um, he, he, he was one of those guys because he was in sales. He always knew somebody, you know, and, and I think there's value in that. I really do. And, um, you know, and I, I, I try to be the same way with, with, with the boys because if I can help them, hey, I, you know, what are you thinking about? I might know somebody there. Let me call them. You know, see if we can help. Um, and that's kind of what I learned from my dad. So I, I think that, you know, Father's Day is a, just such a, a, a great time to, you know, sit, sit and just kind of reflect a little bit. But, you know, we're in different time zones right now. Uh, I'm hoping to be out in, in his time zone at some point in the future once we figure out what's going on with the baseball schedule and whatnot. But, um, you know, it's – it's one of those things where it's good to be able to spend time together when you can. Uh, and Father's Day shouldn't just be one day a year. It really should be, you know, I mean, every, every day, uh, I'm not saying every day you should honor your dad, but every day, you know, uh, you know, don't forget what uh, you can do and what you can learn. And I always think of the things that, you know, I learned from my dad and, uh, you know, I miss him a lot. Yeah, I. It's just really weird to not have a baseball game on Father's Day. I, I, I just think about you know what do you do? Like every team, you play catch on the field with your kids, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and for my broadcast, I always introduce myself instead of saying I'm Josh Sushan, I say I'm Frank Sushan's son on Father's Day, and and I just think about the number of times that we would go to games and he would take me to baseball card shows and, and get me subscriptions to Sports Illustrated and Sporting News and, and, and everything else. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, uh, even though my dad is not in broadcasting or baseball, um, you know, he, he, he loves baseball and uh, that's what we bonded over. And so that's why I love sharing father-son stories as often as possible. I didn't intend for this podcast to have so many father-son stories, but it just becomes natural, I think. Um, so again, both you guys, um, thank you so much for sharing your family story. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Josh. Yeah. Thanks Josh for having us. And uh, we'll see you somewhere pretty soon down the road. Yeah. Hopefully Matt, hopefully at a ballpark. Yeah. Hopefully at uh, Las Vegas ballpark sometime soon, Matt. Hopefully. Yeah. That is Tim and Matt Neverett. And this is life around the scenes.